Uh, we are up to 2 Chronicles 33 and 34, which means that next week will be our last session on Chronicles. Um, and we will continue to meet after that, just no longer on Chronicles. Uh, we'll be getting to something else. But this evening, I have uh, maybe a treat for you, maybe not, but I'm, I'm going to read in its entirety an apocryphal book out loud tonight in the next half hour. So we will see how that goes. Uh, so uh, we're, we're, we're going to move right into the beginning of chapter 33. And I'm going to comment on the guy's name first. This is probably not an actual picture of wicked King Manasseh. But you see there on the left of the... Can you see the, the picture fairly well from where you are? So it says Rex Yud, which means King of Judah, and uh, Manasseh's... Um, in certain Hebrew manuscripts, in certain contexts, not everyone, uh, this man's name is spelled with the letter N um, raised. Uh, whether it's been written by hand or printed with a printing press, um, it is called a, it, it's called a raised or elevated noon. That's how you pronounce letter N in Hebrew. Um, and if you can just look at his name for a moment and imagine it with no vowels and no letter N, you would get the precise spelling of Sarah? Moses. That's exactly right. It's Moses or Moshe. The H would be on the end of there still. And that's how you spell Moses in Hebrew. And I suspect that, and, and, and because the, the Masoretes, the guys who copied the actual Hebrew text and letters and counted them and so forth, they were honest about when they made changes. They called them itura soferim, an, an emendation of the scribes. And there are a number of these, uh, not a very large number, but a number. And sometimes they would take letters of an important saying in the Bible and make the first and last letters big, you know, like a bigger font. And we would say, yeah, that's okay. You know, big, important. Like, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The first and last letters of that are usually written bigger than the rest. In this case, raising up the N is, I believe, an indication that his name really wasn't Manasseh, but it was Moses. And we're going to come to a verse in our context today that says this man led Israel or Judah astray. And I think they really didn't want to say Moses led Israel or Judah astray. And so what they did was they made an honest, you know what we're going to do, uh, kind of a thing. And they misspelled his name on purpose with an N. So they, 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 they named him after the patriarch Manasseh, who's one of, one of uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim Manasseh, rather than let him be named after Moses himself. So I think that's what went on here. Um, that's just my suspicion, but it does account for the misspelling. That's an English translation choice. Yeah, but something very similar. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Um, uh, this one is a Hebrew purposeful misspelling. Um, so, okay. 
All right, let's get to Manasseh here. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he ruled as king in Jerusalem for 55 years. Quickly, math boys, how old was he when he died? 67, very good. Uh, but can you imagine being 67 and having been king for 55 years? That's your whole life as far as your memory goes, right? I mean, what were you doing when you were 11? I, boy, I don't know. I was playing army in the backyard with a baseball bat, I think, um, I, whatever I was doing. But anyway, he ruled 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the disgusting practices of the nations, which the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. That before is not necessarily chronologically, but in front of them. And yet, by this time, it's also a long, long time ago. <clears throat> and based on the context of, this, of these two verses, I believe that wicked King Manasseh was also a historian. I think that he went back into the history of Israel and researched what these older nations did. What did Moab do? What did Ammon do? What did the Horites do? And then he thought to himself, I'm going to try that, which was a really stupid thing to do. But that's what this guy appears to have done because he adds to idolatry by doing this. It's actually a pretty creepy thing to do. So he rebuilt the high places which his father Hezekiah had torn down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He worshipped the whole army of the heavens or if you have an NIV, I think it would say the starry hosts, um, something like that, and served them. What is star worship? What would we call it? Astrology. Yeah, astrology. Um, uh, astrology especially focuses not just on the fixed stars, that is the constellations that don't change or don't change very much, the Big Dipper looks differently today than it did um, when uh, the Battle of Hastings happened a thousand years ago. Did you know that? Slight difference in the way that they're pointing. Um, the, the W constellation that points to the North Star, which is Cassiopeia, that pointed a little bit differently 2,000 years ago. And some of these will change in, in, in just a, a few hundred years. So things change you know, now and then. Um, but astrology also looks at not just the stars, but the planets. And is especially fascinated by the planets, in particular, the seven planets that were known in ancient times. I was going to ask you a question. Oh, it was um, in ancient times, they especially observed what they called the seven planets. Can you guess what the seven ancient planets were. And just to really mess you up, one of them was the sun. No, they didn't count Earth as a planet because it was the center they thought of everything. So very good. So uh, it would be, and the, the, so the, these were the things that they saw moving around. So sun, Mercury, Venus, the moon, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, those were the seven planets. Um, and they're called planets because sometimes they go backwards. They wander. 
So if, uh, if you can imagine the, 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 the orbits of the planets as seen from one planet, once in a while a planet is going around the sun and it will suddenly appear to be going backwards. You'll think, to, and you'll, you'll think, to, why, why, why was Jupiter there three nights ago, then there, then there, and now tonight it's there again? So they have this retrograde motion. And once in a while, not only do they have retrograde, that is backwards motion, but sometimes they also uh, cover up other stars or other planets, which is called an occultation which is where we get the word occult from. That's where that comes from. It's from all from astrology and, and, and so forth. So this guy uh, uh, worshipped the stars. That is, he followed their patterns, probably through regular astrology, um, following when, when something was in what house of the, of the heavens and so forth and what planet was in that house of the heavens when this or that happened and so forth. And he very likely had a, a picture of the zodiac and the 12, um, whatever they're called, zones or whatever it is, um, probably on the roof of his palace or his house or whatever it was. And if, if he were wise, uh, he might have done that as a movable thing like in a rug, but he might have done it in stone. When you do it in stone, you can't move it and then it's wrong next month. So it's wiser to, well, I'm not going to teach you how to do astrology, but uh, anyway. <clears throat> and uh, so, alrighty, And that's, that's part of the, uh, the zodiac, the astrolog astrological things there. Um, but he built altars in the house of the Lord, about which God, the Lord had said, in Jerusalem my name will be forever. He built altars for the whole army of the heavens in the two courtyards of the house of the Lord. So, in the, right in front where the altar is, and then a little bit further out where the Gentiles could go, he had altars to the starry hosts. Um, uh, he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, another, another sacrilege from the, from the Ammonites. Uh, he practiced fortune-telling. and so, We don't have a lot of that in the Bible, but there it is. Um, and sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. When was the last time in the Old Testament when they were talking about mediums and spiritists? Good job. Yeah, Saul, King Saul, which was hundreds of years before this, 400 years before this. He greatly increased the evil deeds he did in the eyes of the Lord and provoked him to anger. He didn't just do evil, he multiplied his evil. God got really upset with wicked King Manasseh. He placed the image of the carved idol that he had made in the house of God. That's the most that's ever said about this idol. I don't know what it was. And I'm kind of glad I don't know what it was. You ever heard the expression, uh, you can't unsee certain things? I don't think I want to know what this was. Uh, we will be told later that it was destroyed by another guy, but... This was, uh, ugh, I, don't, I have no idea what this was. Uh, so uh, the house of God about which God had said to David and his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not make the feet of Israel 
uh, wander again from the land which I assigned to their fathers, but only if they are conscientious to carry out everything I have commanded them, all of the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. So God said, be faithful, and I won't do things to you, and they're not being faithful. In the most gross, horrific way yet. And in Chronicles, that's saying something, because there have been some pretty horrific things. That our, our author wants us to know that among the bad kings of Judah, Manasseh was worst. Okay, He wants us to understand that. Manasseh seduced Judah. There, there it is. I wouldn't want to read this sentence if his name was Moses. Right? Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. Um, not, a, not a great sentence. Um, and some of the things that he did here. I'm going to comment on this because there is, uh, this is not the apocryphal book I'm going to read to you in about four minutes. This is something else called the pseudepigrapha. So just as there is an apocrypha, which is hidden stuff that's not part of scripture, there's also a pseudepigrapha, which means um, falsified authorship. That's what pseudepigrapha means. So there, there are even other documents that are even worse uh, in, their, in, their, in their false, because the, the apocryphal books are not that bad. You know, there's, there's, there, there are wonderful proverbs in them, and there's some decent history in them, and there's a couple weird things, but mostly, I would rather you read the Apocrypha than the average romance novel, okay? I'd really be a lot happier. Uh, uh, however, um, the Pseudepigrapha is where we get some crazy things. But in one case, there is one document in the Pseudepigrapha that I think tells a true story, probably not with accurate details, and that is how wicked King Manasseh persecuted the prophets. Uh, in the book, Manasseh starts persecuting the prophets, and some of them, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, among them, flee into the hills. They, they leave Jerusalem and they go off into the mountains. But one of them, Isaiah, stays behind. But Manasseh's men begin to hunt Isaiah down through the city streets, and Isaiah runs outside the city, and I don't know which direction he goes, but he finds a hollow tree, and he runs in, he hides inside the hollow tree, but he doesn't pull his uh, robe all the way, and it gets snagged or something like that, and he, he can't pull his robe in, and the men see him. And then, because there is more than one copy of this book, um, and we don't know which one is definitive, there are two versions to the story after this point, either Manasseh, sends two men in with, do you know what the old lumberjacks used to use for a big old tree cut and saw with one guy on one end and one guy on the other end and the teeth are like that long and that wide? So, you know, and, that, and they start sawing the tree down with that thing and they cut the tree and the prophet in half. Uh, now there is a worse version of the story. Uh, which involves the same saw. And that is, they put the saw on the tree, began to cut it, um, knew that Isaiah was in there, stopped, 
pulled him out, tied him down, then put the saw back on him and tried to get him to uh, uh, fall away from faith in the true God and to worship the starry hosts and uh, Isaiah won't do it and the wicked king Manasseh comes and tries to get him to, to do this and I, th- I don't remember if Isaiah spits in his eye or how it goes but he won't do it and then finally he clamps up he will not say anything and they saw him in half anyway so then and now the thing about this is that I have the reference here in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, 37 at the end of the heroes of faith chapter we have a reference when the, the author of Hebrews says, and there's lots more stuff and lots more wonderful guys, but the prophets they persecuted and some were put to death with the sword and some they stoned to death and some they sawed in two. So that is actually in the New Testament that some or one of the prophets at least was sawn in or sawed in half. Um, so that's where this comes from. So I, I apologize if your nightmares take you there tonight. I hope that they don't. But instead, would you dream of, bu- of puppies playing with bunnies? The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Yeah. So the Lord brought the officials of the army of the king of Assyria against them. This is one of the last kings of Assyria. Assyria had Esarhaddon and uh, who else have we got here? I don't know if I have them in the notes. Asherbanipal um, are in here. They're, they're some of the last guys in the 640s BC. Um, they're, there's another king of Babylon now called Shemeshunakin uh, before they become pronounceable like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but uh, the, things are happening in Assyria and these are some of the last references to Assyria in the Bible because Assyria is about to fall. Assyria and Babylon are going to uh, switch places like, uh, like uh, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, 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 anybody have a reversible jacket where it's one color on one side, you pull the sleeves out, and all of a sudden it's just a different coat on the other side? It, but it's, it's, it's the same otherwise, same dimensions and everything. That's what's about to happen to Assyria and Babylon. Same dimensions, same borders, just different people in charge. So that's, that's just about to happen. But this, the, this is still the Assyrians. They led Manasseh captive with hooks. Uh, sorry about this uh, nightmarish scene again, but probably in his nose and maybe also through his ears and made him, you know, tugged him away off to Assyria. They bound him there with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. So a city inside of Assyria, Babylon. Babylon was the religious center of Assyria. Uh, Asher was, a, the, the, the city of Ashur was the capital of Assyria, but Babylon was the religious center of Assyria. When he was in distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself deeply before the God of his fathers. He prayed to the Lord, and the Lord responded to his prayer and heard his plea for mercy. He brought him back to Jerusalem into his own kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is the true God. 
So there's a, 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 a book in the Apocrypha called The Prayer of Manasseh. So it's not the actual prayer, but it is a very reverent prayer. And it has some New Testament echoes. I'm not exactly sure when it was written, but maybe it wasn't written in Old Testament times. But it's, it's not very long. It's 15 verses. And uh, uh, so every slide that you see um, in the next couple of slides will have a gray bar on the side. That means this is part of the apocryphal book, the prayer of Manasseh. It's also in italics and so forth. And in fact, would somebody else like to come up and read it? Oh, the, I, did I promise that I would do it? Then I will, I will live up to my promise. O Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of their righteous offspring, you who made heaven and earth with all their order, who shackled the sea by your word of command, interesting word, who confined the deep and sealed it with your terrible and glorious name, at whom all things shudder and tremble before your power. For your glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of your threat to, the sin to sinners is unendurable. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy, for you are the Lord most high of great compassion, long-suffering, and very merciful, and you relent at human suffering. O Lord, according to your great goodness, you have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you, and in the multitude of your mercies you have appointed repentance for sinners so that they may be saved. Therefore you, O Lord, God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. That sounds a lot like Paul to me. For the sin I have, not that Paul wrote this, but it sounds like Paul's theology. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord, they are multiplied. I am not worthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. I am weighed down with many an iron fetter so that I am rejected because of my sins and I have no relief. For I have provoked your wrath and have done what is evil in your sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. A couple more verses. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I acknowledge my transgressions. I earnestly implore you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever or store up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will manifest your goodness for unworthy as I am, you will save me according to your great mercy, and I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings your praise, and yours is the glory forever. Amen. That's the whole book. So, about the same length as Second John. That's some of the, some of, there, there's, there's even an apocryphal piece that's even shorter than this. There's Psalm 151, which is just six verses about the David and Goliath fight, and it doesn't even mention the fight. It's just the triumph afterwards. Anyway. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David in the valley from west of the Gihon Spring up to the entrance by the fish gate. He circled the Ophel with it and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah if I had taken the time to give you a map here, 
that his fortifications would have been the entire east side of the city, the side that faced the Mount of Olives. That's the part of the city he was building up. It has a very deep valley there, and it also faces Assyria. So, um, He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. He himself pulled the idol. I said somebody else did. He didn't. It was, it was him. Pulled that idol out. He removed all the altars he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and threw them outside of the city. Remember we had a king who did that a couple weeks ago who took all the idols and threw them down into the, into the Kidron Valley to get rid of them? Um, no, it does not all. He restored the altar of the Lord and offered sacrifices of fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. He commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. At this point, I have to compare him with earlier and later kings. Earlier, Hezekiah didn't just offer thank offerings, but sin offerings, guilt offerings. That's not what Manasseh does. He does fellowship offerings and thank offerings. Almost as if something's missing. They don't remember the sin offerings. Why would they have forgotten the sin offerings? Well, maybe they're not reading anymore. You know what was commanded? That's coming. So that might be a thing here. Also, he commanded Judah to serve the Lord. So yeah, you can order people around and tell them, but are people going to believe because you tell them they have to? There was a German Lutheran pastor during World War II named Hermann Sassi. Okay, it's fun to say. Let's all say Sassi. Sassi, yeah. Uh, um, he came to America in the 20s and from, from Germany and found out here, actually in St. Louis, what it means to truly be a Lutheran. It never had occurred to him before to follow the confessions and to actually believe that the Bible is the true word of God. He said, I never would have known what the truth was if I hadn't come to Missouri. And, and then he begins writing letters from Germany. This is, by the way, during the rise of the Nazis. He begins, and, and, and men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've heard of him, Bonhoeffer read Sassi, and, and other men read Sassi. And, but he began writing letters exclusively to American Lutherans and Australian Lutherans to, to, to encourage us to keep it up and to talk about, you know, from his point of view, what was wrong with religion in the entire world, not just Christianity, but all religions. And it came down to confessional Lutheranism is the answer. Um, amazing stuff uh, uh, to read. Uh, how many of you have heard of Professor Deutschlander's book, The Narrow Lutheran Middle? Um, Sassi had a name for the same doctrine, but he called it the lonely way. It's the same thing. They're talking about the same thing, that there are other paths. This one is the narrow path, the lonely path, and so forth. All right. Uh, why don't I bring up Sassi? Um, oh, because when you, command, when you order people to, to believe what you think they should believe, that's not how you create church fellowship. And what inevitably happens is things begin to crumble and crack and break apart rather than meld into the, the right hand of fellowship. When you force fellowship on people, they will disintegrate, which is what happened to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America a couple of years ago. You force fellowship on those people, 
by, by voting rather than by understanding what the truth is and what the Bible says, and eventually it will just disintegrate. It will crack and dissolve like a broken bad tooth. That's saucy, okay? So that's what Manasseh is trying to do. It's not going to last. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So good, not good, not great. It's a step. It's not a step all the way. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.